Well, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I did. It's always nice you have two days off, but then Sunday's coming, you know, at the end of the week, and you still have a sermon to preach, so I'm not sure exactly how you get two days off. You just have to make up the two days between uh, Thursday, Friday, Sat- on Saturday, you just have to make it up, or maybe on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. I don't, I don't know how that works, but anyway, here we are, uh, and uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation, uh, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 13 and 14. I'm, I'm actually going to o- overlap with some of what we taught last week and, and, and review it a bit or approach it differently. Maybe that's a better way to say it. I'm going to come at it a little bit differently uh, because I think there's a lot there that's very important for us to get. Um, one moment here. In Revelation 13, we'll begin reading in verse number 9. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And then if you would jump forward to chapter 14 and verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing water and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins." They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens and the earth the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on 
the cloud, swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you'd open our hearts to, to hear, to understand, to, to see and perceive. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If they kill me, I'll reach my arms out through my tomb, and I'll be even stronger. Those are the words of Minerva Mirabal, whose life and deeds are credited with ultimately toppling one of the longest, cruelest, and most absolute dictatorships in modern history. One largely unknown to the average American, though it existed in our own hemisphere. She spoke those words not long before she and her sisters were murdered, when she was being encouraged to back down. Rafael Leonidas Trujillo Molina, or El Jefe as he was called, held power in the Dominican Republic from 1930 until his assassination in 1961. While actively promoting family values, the sanctity of the home, and morality, anytime he saw a good-looking single woman, he demanded that she be brought to him for sex, and then after using them, he discarded them. The Legacy of the Butterflies tells the story of these three sisters who are credited with ultimately toppling his regime. In their deaths, yes, but also in their refusal to bow to his demands. They provide a picture of how the church must address the demands of the beast, or the beast as the case is. As followers of the murdered lamb, who yet lives, we ought to understand Minerva's meaning well. If they kill me, I'll reach my arms out through my tomb, and I'll be even stronger. Last week we looked at uh, a good chunk of this section that we're looking at today, although we've gone beyond that. And we focused on the beast. This morning I want to revisit parts of the last couple of weeks um, and, and focus on the ways of the Lamb. Last week we, we saw how not to live in following the beast. This week we're going to see how we are to live. To back up and get a little bit of a big picture of what's going on in these middle chapters of Revelation. And by middle chapters, I'm really talking about chapters 6 through 20. You know, realistically, 2021, 20, I mean, as we get in there. But these middle chapters in, in Revelation, we have a lot of things taking place. So I'm going to just kind of succinctly state some of the big things. One, when the seventh trumpet sounds, um, and we see that in chapter 11, verse 15, things begin to happen. Now, we, we know there was some things that began to happen when a seventh trumpet sounded on the seventh day, the seven trumpets, when the conquest of Canaan and that was the beginning of the conquering of the kingdom of Canaan back in the book of Joshua. And there were a lot of things that happened here, but in this book, in when the seventh trumpet sounds, the conquest of the world for Christ begins. 
We see that in chapter 12 because that's when the, the child is snatched up to God into heaven, but that's when his reign ultimately begins, which is with his ascension. There are two creatures, however, vying for power in the book of Revelation. The dragon and his two beasts on a leash that we have on the one side, and the lamb looking as if he had been slain, along with his army of 144,000 virgins, which is not a very fearsome crowd to be sure. But they are called the firstfruits that are offered to God and to the Lamb in chapter 14, verse 4. We read it a moment ago, which indicates there'll be more to follow. If they're the first fruits, there are other fruits that will come after them. In fact, their being offered to God and to the Lamb might be the very reason why there are other fruits to follow, because they themselves have been offered to God and to the Lamb. The manner of this war, this conquest, is mysterious at least, if not strange. It ends with blood reaching the bridles of the horses for 1,600 stadia. And that's a lot of blood, no matter what a stadia is. Okay. <laughs> but it isn't entirely clear whose blood it is. I want to explore a text under three headings this morning. Whose claim is valid is the first heading. The second heading, whose blood is it? And the third heading, who is Lord of the harvest? Whose claim is valid? Whose blood is it? And who is Lord of the harvest? So let's begin under that first heading, whose claim is valid? The claim of authority over the earth and its kingdom is made by the beast and the lamb through these middle chapters of Revelation. We see regarding the Lamb, when the seventh trumpet had sounded, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. But then we see in chapter 12, verse 5, that the woman gave birth to a son, a male child, who, quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Now that's a quote out of the Old Testament, so it's bringing that forward and saying, that promise is this child. He'll rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Then at the ascension of Jesus to reign at God's right hand in chapter 12, we read, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. So He reigns at God's right hand. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah. And then in verse 6 of chapter 14, we moments ago read, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, if you've been around here very long, you know that we, we talk about this fairly regularly, and it's even in our foundations class, but a gospel, in short, is the proclamation of a king's rule. It's the announcement that somebody has begun to reign. Now, it tells the story of his birth, his life, his teachings, his conquest, and how he came to reign, basically. But it's all of that, and that's why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are called gospels, because they tell the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his teachings, how he came to reign by death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. Okay, so they're Gospels, and that is fundamentally what a Gospel is. So we've got an angel flying in midair that has the eternal Gospel. Now, the Roman emperors claimed to have the eternal Gospel, but they didn't in fact have the eternal Gospel. Jesus had the eternal Gospel and has the eternal Gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth. So the very fact that there's an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people, is a claim that Jesus has authority over every tribe, nation, language, and people. Because it's the announcement that he is king. Amen. Amen. He will reign forever. It's an eternal gospel. His, his reign will never end. Well, the beast also makes a claim. 
Now, we know from chapter 12 and verse 4 that the beast receives his authority from the dragon. Actually, I think that's chapter 13 and verse 4. I think I've got the wrong reference here in my notes. But um, the beast receives his authority from the dragon. And we, we read that the beast was given power, of course, that's by the dragon, to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority by the dragon, of course, since that's the one where he gets it from, according to verse 4, um, over every tribe, people, language, and, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Then we read further down in chapter 13 and verse 14, it says, because of the signs, it, w- it was given power by the dragon to perform on behalf of the first beast. So you've got the second beast is given power, again, by the dragon, we know that, to perform uh, on behalf of the first beast signs. And this second beast deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power. Again, how is he given power? We read in 13.4, by the dragon, to give breath to the image of the first beast so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, that's everybody, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. We looked at that last week more. So the book of Revelation is about a war. A war over who has the rightful claim over the world and whose methods will ultimately win out. Jesus Christ who conquered death, hell, and the tomb or the dragon who seeks to destroy him and his followers. Who is it that will win this great battle? What we discover is that simultaneously with the kingdom of this world belonging to the uh, Lord and his, our Lord and His Christ, with Him having begun to reign, the dragon gives authority to the beast to rule over all the inhabitants of the world. So they're at war with each other. And this book is not only about the war and its outcomes, it's about the war and the ways in which it is actually fought. We see how the beast fights his war. He makes demands. He kills those who don't obey. But what about the followers of the Lamb slain? They love not their life, even unto death. We'll look at that in a moment more. What becomes apparent is that there will be a lot of bloodshed in this battle. But that leads to the question, whose blood is this? If you'll read with me again in chapter 13, verse 9 to start, just revisit some verses here. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So there's a, a clue that what we're about to hear is going to require discernment. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance on the faithfulness and faithfulness on the part of God's people or the saints, the, the holy people of God. Well, the point is, if it calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, that, that when it talks about the one that's going into captivity or the one that's going to be killed with the sword, it's the people of God that are being spoken of there. And then, In chapter 14, verse 12 and 13, again, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, the saints, the holy people, who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. And then we read in 
the end of chapter 14, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. By the way, it's a really bad idea when translations try to turn that into modern measurements, and so they come up with you know, 180 miles or some such, whatever it is, because the whole meaning is in the number itself and its symbolism. So you lose that in, in, in when, when translated that way. This expression, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the God, part of God's people or the holy ones. Or, as it's the second time with slight variation, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God or the holy ones who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus, creates what is technically called an inclusio. Or I like to refer to them as bookends. You've got you know, all this material in between and then you've got something sitting on each end of that. This statement that's repeated here and here. And that tells you that they help us understand what's going on between them. And what's going on between them is, first, we have the second beast who's causing people to worship the first beast. And we have the lamb and his army of 144,000 virgins and the, har- and the harvest of the world. All that's going on in here, okay? And so we have to, to, to note that this tells us something about how all of that is going to play out. And, they are, and it's certainly going to require patience on the part of God's holy people and faithfulness. Not, not turning away their faith from Jesus. Not being disloyal to Him. Remember, 144,000 virgins is a symbol of the fact that they are not idolaters. Okay? They, they, they haven't begun to worship because adultery and fornication were the signs or or the symbols for uh, idolatry throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. So we carry that forward into into the book of Revelation. At the end of the harvest, we read about this vast amount of blood which resulted from the great winepress of God's wrath. But again, I ask, whose blood is this? On first read, since the Lamb wins, the assumption is that this is the blood of God's enemies. But then again, on first read, the one who is worthy to open the the seals is the conquering lion of Judah, not a slain lamb. And on first read, the army of God is 144,000 perfectly numbered Israeli uh, army, not the mongrel innumerable church. Our assumptions are rooted in how we think winning works. Winning works by killing your enemies. That's how we think. So if there's a bunch of blood filling up this space, this vast amount of space, well, then it must be the enemy's blood because we win, right? (laughs) That's how we assume things. But let's consider what leads up to this. And I've mentioned this before, but the 144,000 of chapter 14 were introduced in chapter 7. There they are sealed on their foreheads in advance of what was coming on the earth. John hears their description, a perfectly complete Israeli army, 12,000 from each tribe, numbered like they would number the fighting men of their army. You know, 12,000. When you read through the Old Testament, anytime you start getting numbers like this, it's about the army. This is the army that we're talking about. So there's 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, which in and of itself would be miraculous since 10 of the tribes had disappeared anyway. That's why I call them an Israeli army, not a Jewish army. Jewish army would only include two of the tribes, but an Israeli army would include them all, right? 
But they don't exist anymore, not naturally speaking. Nobody knows where they are. But here they are in Revelation. He hears about this, and then he turns to see that group. And when he looks to see them, what does he see? An innumerable multitude from every ethnic group, tribe, people, and language. Which turns out to be none other than the true church. Now they show up again here in chapter 14, in between these two statements of, that calls for patient endurance. In fact... 13.10, again, if, they go into cap- if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. So the blood of the saints is certainly in the discussion about whose blood it is. That the 144,000 are called virgins, which references they're not entering into idolatry, specifically the idolatry of the beast, then that tells us, in, because at the end of chapter 13, we're told that will cost them their very life. At a minimum, if it doesn't cost them their life, it'll cost them success in business and serious economic issues because they can't buy, sell, or trade. Now, after being redeemed from among the people, we're told about this 144,000, they are offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Now, that infers two things. One, that they're offered, their lives are sacrificial. So, again, this could well be their blood. This may connect them to what we read of the martyrs in in chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, we read in chapter 6, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until what? The full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And of course, the 144,000 are found to be dressed in white robes also in chapter 7. So is it these, the people of God, that are faithful witnesses that are being spoken of? Is it their blood that fills this valley, if you will, up, this massive space? Their being offered as a sacrifice also connects them to the seed of the woman in chapter 12, who triumphed over the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And it likewise connects them to us who are called to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and living sacri- uh, uh, prop- true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. From Romans 12. Not everyone is a martyr, to be sure, but all believers, in in view of God's mercy, offer their lives sacrificially to the work of the King and His kingdom, to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven, and they will prove that will and approve it as they live it out. So the first thing we see about this 144,000 is that they are offered to God and to the Lamb, but secondly we see that their work produces more fruit because they are offered as the firstfruits implying that there's more fruit to follow. Now that bleeds into our third point today about the harvest, but for now suffice it to say that the work of this army of the Lamb is connected to the harvest of the earth. 
it makes sense that immediately following the description of this army, we read about three angels or messengers in chapter 14, starting in verse 6. The first messenger, having the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. This is how the army of the Lamb does battle, with the eternal gospel in its mouth. Just like the rider of the white horse Christ in the later chapters, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Which isn't, of course, a literal sword, but the word of God, we are told. The second messenger declaring Babylon the great, the empire which seduced the nations, is fallen. So, so on the one hand, the gospel is being proclaimed, which is what? Jesus reigns. On the other hand, oh, you, the one you think reigns, Babylon? They don't reign. They've fallen. That deal's over. Jesus is the true Messiah. He's God's promised good king, and he's the one who will bring about peace, joy, hope in the world. And then the third is a warning. The third messenger brings a warning to all the inhabitants of the earth not to worship the beast or its image, the emperor, the empire, the whole system that requires total allegiance. Don't do that. Why? Because guess who reigns? You don't want to live in rebellion to the true king. Follow the true king. And all this leads to the harvest of the earth, which I'll get to in a moment. But it is that harvest that produced this rising flow of blood that we read about in verses 19 and 20. Now, calculating the volume of blood misses the point, though it is a vast amount of blood. But we have to remember that all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. There are three square numbers in Revelation. The square is the number by its times itself, so two times two is a square. 3 times 3 is a square. 16 times 16, you know, on and on and on. The same number by itself. And so, there are three square numbers in Revelation. 144,000, 12 times, 12,000 times 12,000, which turns out to be the church. 144 cubits, the thickness of the wall of the city, the new Jerusalem, which is the bride of the Lamb, which, of course, we know to be the church. And 1,600, which is 40 times 40. So you have 12,000 times 12,000, you have 12 times 12, and you have 40 times 40. Now, is there any significance to the number 40 in Scripture? <laughs> I mean, you think? Maybe just a little? Like there's the 40 years of testing in the wilderness. There's the 40 days of testing of Jesus in the wilderness. And remember, the seed of the woman, which is the church, which begins as Israel, becomes the church as you walk through the chapter. It's not really a transformation as much as it's just a, a fulfillment. This seed of the woman is given wings of a great eagle along with the woman and brought into the wilderness where she'll be taken care of. So the church, the woman, the church exists in the wilderness. So 40 is a relevant number certainly there. It might be relevant that Ezekiel had to lay on his right side for 40 days for the sins of the people of Judah. As well that 40 days and 40 nights the floodwaters came on the earth, which both destroyed what was on the earth, but also lifted the ark high above the destruction, saving many lives there. Indeed, from which we all came. <laughs> Given the context of Revelation... All of these have some relevance to understanding 40 times 40. Maybe it's a mixture of the blood of those who refuse to repent after all the chances offered to them are rejected. 
mixed with the blood of saints who bear, in some sense, the sins of the people against them, and in so doing, bring the message of redemption. It definitely speaks of the time period and the blood that will be shed while we live in the wilderness of this world, this time and place of testing. And even back in chapters 2 and 3, in speaking to the churches, there's a speak of the, the great test that is coming on the earth. The days of trial. The work of this 144,000 seems to be what's producing this blood. And I would argue that the main thing we're to understand from it is it's the blood of the saints. Maybe mixed with the blood of the slain lamb that has produced this great harvest of the earth. Because you can kill the people of God, but their blood will only create seed for the ground to rise up and create more and grow more. So the, 140, the work of the 144,000 leads to the harvest of the earth. And that leads to our third point. Who is Lord of the harvest? Who is Lord of the harvest? And, and I might add the sub-question, and how does he Lord the harvest? How does he Lord it? So, verse 6 uh, of chapter 14 again. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. I looked, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple, and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he was seated on the cloud, swung a sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines because its grapes are ripe. So who is this? This fella that's like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Ask it another way. Who is Lord of the harvest? The one like a son of man, I think, is clearly Christ. The scene leads to three questions, though. When is this? In other words, when are the harvest fields ripe? Where is this cloud upon which he is seated? And how does he reap the harvest? So let's start with the first one. When is this? When are the harvest fields ripe? You're probably familiar with Jesus sending the twelve in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. When Jesus saw the crowds, we read there, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he asked, or then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So the harvest was ripe for harvesting when Jesus was here. The time was ripe. <clears throat> Luke's gospel has the sending of the 72 disciples, pointing forward to the sending of the gospel into all the world. There Jesus told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. But then it adds this, verse 3. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. You see... That added description, like lambs among wolves, is much like saying like the lamb among beasts. 
It's much like what's going on in Revelation, that the church is sent out like lambs among wolves. Jesus' methods as Lord of the harvest is to send lamb-like, not beast-like disciples into the world. Which is why evangelization, why the gospel could never expand when the first thing you do is send an army in to control the people and enslave them. And then, oh, we're going to go ahead and teach them the gospel. Which is what was attempted to go on through all the colonization of the world. And, and, and somehow the church took part in that. Which is a sad reality. Talked more about that last week, but leave it at that. Where is this cloud? So we know when. We know the harvest field has been ripe since Jesus was here. But where is this clouds? Well, clouds are in the sky. Last time I checked. In the heavens, if you will. Clouds make invisible what is beyond them. So when a bird or a plane goes into the clouds, it is no longer seen. It's invisible. We read in Acts chapter 1, just after Jesus tells them that the kingdom will be restored as they are witnesses in Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, and Judea, the southern kingdom, and Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom and its surrounding area, and then to the nations and the peoples at the ends of the earth. And then we read this, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. This is the ascension. It is the most understated moment in the Bible and the most significant moment in the history of Christ's rule. Right there. He's taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. He is the one in the clouds right now who reigns out of sight, beyond what we can see, over everything in heaven and earth, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm I'm sorry, chapter 1, the end of the chapter, 19 and following. He remains in the clouds today. As we reap the harvest by preaching the eternal gospel in the world. And for us, that means especially right here in Tampa Bay and especially right here in our own community. How does he lord the harvest? So we we, we know the when is that the harvest fields are right. We know where it's in the unseen realm. And both of those speak to right now. (laughs) Right now. But how does he lord the harvest? Well, first, through the proclamation of the gospel to all creatures under heaven. And second, through the witness of the church, his army, who love not their lives even to the point of death, whose blood indeed may be spilled, and whose lives are a living sacrifice being offered to God and the Lamb through our witness. Now, this calls for patient endurance. We do battle in the Lamb's ways, not the dragon's ways. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. The Lamb's ways of doing battle guided the early church to be the most prolific harvesters in its long history. But they were the most prolific harvesters in a time when both the cost of discipleship was at its highest and great evangelistic campaigns or programs within the church were not just slow, they were missing entirely. Being faithful followers of the Lamb 
was the focus of their witness. Living the gospel, we call it sometimes, or what we sometimes now refer to as gospel culture, gospel mercy, gospel outreach, and gospel unity. It's putting it into practice, being a witness with our lives. So the preaching of the gospel, and word, word and deed is often referred to. We long for the kingdom, praying your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But this longing cannot be achieved through earthly means. What we long for, we cannot accomplish by earthly means. To achieve this desire that we long for, we have to grow long. It's a longing. It requires us to grow long. We must have long-suffering or patient endurance. Alan Kreider describes the early church. Um, he's an early church historian. Quote, Christians did not worry that absence of pagans from their services constituted a lost opportunity. Their worship was not evangelistic. It was not seeker-sensitive. Their intent in worshiping was to glorify God rather than to attract outsiders. And since they believed that authentic worship formed the worshipers, gospel formation, it formed the worshipers, they believed that in the course of time, the behavior of those so formed would attract outsiders. Later, Kreider describes how Tertullian taught patience. Tertullian, and by the way, he, he wrote the first treatise in the history of the church on a single virtue. And it was on the treatise of patience. In fact, there were three treatises written on patience before there was a treatise written on anything else. That's how important patience was in the minds of the early church. He said, well, love's more important. Well, love is patient. We, we, we can't get beyond that. Tertullian urges... Christians, he writes, who live by Jesus' precepts to wear their oppressors out with patience. Let wrongdoing, this is now quoting Tertullian, let wrongdoing grow weary from your patience. Kreider continues, according to Tertullian, the key to the believer's patient lifestyle is their confession that in the resurrection of Jesus, God has vindicated his teachings and way. Now listen to that. In the resurrection of Jesus, God has vindicated his teachings, Jesus' teachings, and his way of doing things, his way of life. And as a result, they expect that they too will be resurrected. Tertullian asserts, now we're quoting Tertullian, if we believe in the resurrection of Christ, we believe in our own also, since it was for us that he died and rose again. Kreider continues, the Christian's lifestyle is rooted in hope. In contrast, impatience is hopeless. Quoting Tertullian again, Now nothing undertaken through impatience can be transacted without violence. And everything done with violence has either met with no success or has collapsed or has plunged to its own destruction. What happens when we become impatient in our marriage relationships, in our parenting relationships, in our peer relationships? We, we resort to forms of violence, whether that's physical or yelling or uh, uh, anger or withdrawing. I mean, there are various forms of violence that we wreak on, on people. We have to be a patient people. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's people and faithfulness to the Lamb. Just a couple of thoughts in closing. M M Minerva Mirabal understood 
all that we've talked about in, in some sense, I think, when she said, if they kill me, I'll reach my arms out through my tomb and I'll be even stronger. She somehow understood that, that even death cannot stop the right acts and refusal to bow to this beast. Can we confidently say, if they kill us, we'll reach our arms out through our tombs and be even stronger? If they kill us, we'll reach our arms out through our tombs and be even stronger. Can we say, if we suffer loss for the sake of Christ, we'll reach out in our loss, our poverty, our imprisonment, our being mocked, our weakness, and be even stronger? Can we confidently say, when I am weak, then I am strong, for Christ's power is made perfect in weakness? How do we prepare for such a time of persecution as we see has occurred in church history, is occurring elsewhere in the world today, and that one day we too may experience? How do we prepare for such a time? Maybe we prepare by practicing patience right now in a world that is in a hurry. Oliver Berkman, author of the book, 4,000 Weeks, who is not a believer as far as I know or can tell, but he recognizes the power of patience in the world today. He, he talks about how much of a hurry everyone is in today. And, and by the way, Christians and churches aren't exempt, especially, I think. But he writes this, he says, As society accelerates, something shifts. In more and more contexts, patience becomes a form of power. In a world geared for hurry, the capacity to resist the urge to hurry, to allow things to take the time they take, is a way to gain purchase on the world, to do the work that counts, and to derive satisfaction from the doing itself instead of deferring all your fulfillment to the future. You know, most of us are, well, I'm, what are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm trying to build a life so that one day I can retire and I'll be in a good position. In other words, I'm living for some future moment, but I'm not enjoying the moment. As believers who understand that eternity is an awful long time, we don't need to be in a hurry to get there. We can patiently wait. We can be okay with God's slow methods. I mean, if you think God is quick, just look at, like, world history. <laughs> like, you know, you, you read the Bible and you're like, why did he wait so long to send Jesus? And he's patient. <laughs> And that, at least that, right? We'll give a lot of other reasons, but there's at least that. And you look at the whole, yeah, anyway, we'll, I can't go there. I'm out of time. <laughs> Eugene Peterson, in Practicing Resurrection, that's the title of his a book by him, uh, subtitle, A Conversation on Growing Up in Christ. He speaks for, to the need for slow, patient work in the church. And he said this, he said, Not long ago, a pastor who has made an art form of pole vaulting from church to church told me that I was wasting my time on this. There was no challenge to it. It was about as exciting as standing around watching paint dry. I suggested to him that most of our ancestors in both Israel and, and the church have spent most of their time watching the paint dry. That the persevering, patient, unhurried work of growing up in Christ has occupied the center of the church's life for centuries. And that this American marginalization is, well... American. He dismissed me. He needed, he said, a challenge. I took it from his tone and manner that a challenge was by definition something that could be met and accomplished in 40 days. 
God's called us to do, it not only will take longer than 40 days, it might well take longer than 40 years. In fact, it might well take longer than our lifetimes. It's more like building a cathedral in the Middle Ages, which is going to be started by people who never see it finished and finished by people who never thought of starting it. It's not like building a skyscraper in downtown St. Petersburg. To be patient, we have to adjust our expectations for the long game. In what areas of your life, my life, is impatience keeping us from experiencing what God has for us today? That what, what, what keeps us from experiencing the reality that God is our portion in joy? Are we always seeking something else to be our portion in joy? Just so we get there. Because until we can learn contentment when we're not being persecuted, we certainly won't stand the test when we are. Let's pray. This calls for patient endurance on the part of God's holy ones and faithfulness to Jesus. Lord, Give us patient endurance. Teach us to be faithful to Jesus. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.